Good morning. For all of you dads out there who are wonderful dads and are doing all the right things, someday I hope to be half of who you are. And for all of you dads who are struggling to get by, hang in there. There's still time yet to be the dad you want to be. We are in this series entitled Bad Dads. And I'm just going to face it, sometimes as a dad I drop the ball completely. In fact, earlier this week my son had a moment where he was struggling to be kind to his sister and then in turn to his brother. And so as I walked in the house, I heard him say something very unkind in an unkind way to his sister, and I just calmly and kindly said to him, hey, remember, that's not how we treat our sister. Please speak kindly to her. And I walked away, and I did my thing, and I came back, and as I came back, I heard him speak to his brother in an unkind manner. So again, I said, hey, remember, that's not how we speak to your brother. And he kind of lost it, as kids do sometimes. And so when I began the parenting process of let's talk through this and maybe discipline, maybe not, as I was talking to him, he said, Dad, I only responded the way you sometimes do. You're not wrong, son. You're not wrong. See, sometimes as dads, the hard part can be that our kids are watching us, whether we know it or not. They see all of our failures and hopefully some of our good. They see all of the ways we're not quite who we need to be. And sometimes they begin to become like us whether we want them to or not. As we go through this series of bad dads, this is not intended by any means to shame any parent for how much they've not gotten it right. So if you're here and you hear these things like, yeah, that's my dad, my parents suck, stop it and repent, all right? And if you're here today and you're feeling convicted like, oh, I've been there or I am there, the reason we're doing this series is to look at something called generational sin throughout Scripture. This idea that the sins of the fathers visits the next generation. In fact, in Exodus chapter 20, in the middle of the Ten Commandments, God is speaking to His people and He says this. This is what came up last week at the start of the series. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This singular verse can be such a cause of confusion and pain. What does it mean that God visits the iniquities of the fathers on the children? Does that mean we are only a byproduct of what our parents have done? If that's the case, we're all in trouble. And last week as we started this, we began with the reality that to some measure, our first bad dad is to blame for all of our sin. In fact, Adam is to blame, not in some measure, but in every measure for our sin. Because you and I cannot, even to our best effort, go without sinning. We are inherently, originally, from the time we were conceived, sinful because of the sins of one man. And last week we talked about how God blesses to the thousands 
those who love Him and keep His commandments. And how in Christ, you and I are now to be blessed not by our original sin or the curse that we were under, but even better, by the promises God gives to restore and renew and lead us in a different direction. So as we talk about original sin and we point out just reflecting on the past you come from, no, this is not to condemn your parents or to condemn your future, but to be honest, every one of us comes from some level of brokenness. Some of us from more visible brokenness and others from more hidden brokenness. But when we stop and reflect on where we've come from, it invites us into something brand new. Maybe where we've been does not need to be where we go. So, for example, in that conversation with my son, when he said, well, this is how you respond sometimes, the only answer was to say, you're right. Which is why I have to ask you forgiveness or for forgiveness often. Because even as a dad, I don't get it right. And if I acted as if I always got it right, my son's going to learn that he needs to be just like me to get it all right. And that's not good. So when we see where we've been, we get to say, where do we want to go? Who are we going to become in Christ through His blessing, through His forgiveness, that our future generations may have different struggles than we have? Today we're going to look at a bad dad who in many ways was a really good dad, but in some ways not so much. Maybe you've heard of this guy. His name is Abraham. Anybody ever heard of Abraham? Or maybe you remember that children's song, Father Abraham has many sons, and many sons has. And if you're like, I have no idea what you're singing, welcome to the point where kids' songs will always prevail in some measure, all right? <laughs> Father Abraham, the founder of all Judeo Christian faith. Every Jew traces their faith back to him, and every Christian traces their faith back to a promise God made to Abraham. A little side note, in case you didn't know this, every Muslim traces their faith back to Abraham as well. But all three of these religions have greatly diverged in different directions. See, here's the story of Abraham. If you want to follow along, it's Genesis chapter 12. I, don't, I didn't put the uh, page number uh, on the screen, but Genesis chapter 12, if you don't know where that's at, it's the first book of the Bible, like really early on, just a couple of pages, all right? Oh, I guess there is a page number, page 11. Aaron, you're great. In case you don't know that, Aaron's awesome, all right? So up until chapter 11 in the story of Genesis, we see that because of Adam's sin, everything goes to hell in a handbasket. It just keeps falling apart and getting worse and worse, so much so that God regrets that he made mankind and he decides to wipe it all out. Except he spares one man, a man named Noah, and Noah's three sons and their wives, so eight people total, and he spares them through this great colossal flood. And then what we see immediately afterwards is even after God spares him for being a righteous man, Noah goes and does something stupid and gets really drunk and passes out naked and brings shame to his family like a great dad. And then after this, in chapter 11, there's kind of an interlude between Noah 
and Abraham, where God explains how because of their sinfulness, He scatters them all across the land and with all kinds of different languages that they cannot work together and understand each other. And then comes Abraham. At the time, his name was Abraham. But here's what it says. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God calls this one man who is childless. As it goes on to say, I believe he was 75 at the time when God calls him. Anybody in here 75 and childless? Anybody excited to have a child when you're over 75? Having children when you're young is exhausting. Having children over 75, I don't even know how physically or practically that could work. But God says to this childless man, leave your family and your country and go. I will show you the way. And as you go, I will bless you abundantly in such a way that the whole world is blessed because of you. What an incredible promise to be given by God. So of course, Abraham in faith leaves and does everything right following this. Wrong. Abraham's given this awesome promise, and in the very same chapter, the immediate next section, we see Abraham screws it up big time. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Well, that's sweet of him, right? And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Maybe you don't quite understand what he's saying there. He looks at his wife and he's like, dang girl, you are really good looking. And everybody else knows it. And if you're married to me, they can only marry you and take you to be theirs if I'm out of the picture. And I'm afraid they're going to do just that. So how about you just say that I'm your brother and then they can do whatever they please and that's not sinful and wrong to them. Do you get what he's saying? He's literally offering his wife up. Look, how about you, if they want to marry you, you just give yourself to them and that'll be that. Now in our culture, when we think of marriage, we often think of a ring and a ceremony and a celebration and a dress and all these wonderful things. But marriage throughout Scripture was to be intimately connected to another in only one way. You guys can probably fill in the blanks. If you don't know what I'm talking about, talk to your parents. Let them explain it. So, when Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he, he dealt well with Abraham. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. 
Father Abraham, this great and wonderful man whom God just promised in the same chapter, I will bless you abundantly and I will be with you and I will be your God and it will be okay, is terrified that God will not be faithful and he will die at the hands of these Egyptians. So he offers his wife to the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's sons that he might be spared. I can only imagine the marriage counseling they would have needed after this. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Story number one, Abraham blows it big time. And then a few other crazy things happen that we're going to skip over, such as God again reaffirms this promise and says, your children will be more numerous than all the stars. And Sarai is like, I'm in my 90s. I don't really know how that's going to work. So what if you just take my servant and you have children with her? It, guys, if your wife offers that, it's a trap. It will never go well, I promise. And what happens then is Abraham fathers a child, not with his wife whom God promised, with another woman, a man named Ishmael. And then, as you can imagine, problems arise and jealousy arises between the two women and fighting arises. And so then he sends her away to die in the wilderness with her son, his son. But God promises to Ishmael, I will also make you a great nation, now known as the nation of Islam, the people of that faith. But this happens, God again reaffirms His promises over and over again. God says, I will be faithful. I will do this for you. And then comes chapter 20. If you'd like to flip ahead to chapter 20. Again, Abram travels into a new land. Now, by this point, God has given him a new name, uh, the name Abraham, which instead of meaning father of many, means father of the multitudes or the nations. Right? So God reaffirms the promise and solidifies it with a whole new name. You are now somebody new. Chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Sound familiar? And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you not kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself say, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. 
so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them of all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Now for the second time, Abraham is faced with a dangerous situation. What if God is not faithful in this moment? What if God doesn't follow through and these people overpower me and kill me? And he resorts to the same habit, the same sin, and the same problem he had in Egypt. Oh, great Father Abraham kind of sucked. His fear kept him from trusting in God's faithfulness. Sometimes when we look at generational sin, it's important to note that sometimes the sin is not always what does happen, but what doesn't happen. What should have, but didn't. Out of fear, you were held back from something more. Perhaps when you think about your own family, you can think of how fear influenced the decisions you had growing up. Don't talk to those people. They're kind of sketchy, and you learn to be afraid of everybody else. Hey, if you don't get this perfect and you're not exactly who I want you to be, you should know I will be disappointed and ashamed. And so you live with this fear of always trying to be enough for everybody else in such a way that you never know if you actually are enough. Or perhaps growing up you heard this phrase, you just wait until your father comes home. And there is a sense of fear of your dad. He's the authoritative dictator. When he comes home, you know that's when the hammer's coming down and all your sins will bear their weight against you. You just wait until he comes home. And rather than seeing a dad who loves you and disciplines in love, you saw a dad in anger who responded with harsh and cruel punishment at times. And you learned to fear if my mistakes are ever known, everything will come to ruin. Twice we see from Abraham this fear. God cannot fulfill His promises. God is not able to be who He says He is. God is not big enough, so I need to lie and deceive and say she's just my sister. And that's how I will be protected. Great Father Abraham struggled to trust in his father, a God who loved him fully. Now what we do see later is God gives him this son that was promised a son named Isaac, and God tells Abraham, I want to know that you love and trust me more than anything else, and so I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham trusts God and follows through. Almost. He has his son carry the wood up the mountain as he carries the fire. And his son says, God, hey, Dad, where's the uh, sacrifice? And Abraham says, don't worry, God will provide. And I wonder the thought in his head, like, will he actually provide? And Abraham ties his son up and puts him on the altar and gets ready to kill him. And God, at the very last moment, intervenes. Stop. Don't do this. 
And then God does provide a ram in the thicket. And that's that. In Christian history and Jewish interpretation, they say that Isaac willingly laid himself on the altar, but we don't actually know what transpired there. I wonder what the walk down the mountain was like for Isaac and Abraham. Was Abraham filled with sorrow, I almost did this, or joy, thank God I trusted him and he provided? Or is Isaac filled with this wonder, what was my dad about to do? Has he lost it? Did he really just try to kill me? I wonder what kind of counseling maybe should have been needed there. But you see, the story with Isaac proves just how much Abraham failed as a really good dad. Here's what happens in chapter 26. Right after Abraham's death, God gives a promise to Isaac. He reiterates all that he said to Abraham. He said, I'm still going to bless you like I told your father I would. I'm still going to be everybody I said I would be. I will do the things I said I would do. I will be faithful. Enter chapter 26. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Sound familiar? When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, She is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Catch that? Isaac was not born when his father did the same thing twice. And yet, Isaac's repeating the same behavior his father had with the same man, even. Abimelech twice gets duped by this family. Twice he finds himself in this place of trouble. Twice he only wishes they would have spoken the truth. He looks out the window and he sees Isaac laughing with his wife. I don't know if you've ever looked at somebody laughing and be like, they must be husband and wife. That's normally not what I think when I see two people laughing. See, the Hebrew here implies that the laughter was a kind of personal delight and pleasure and intimacy that you don't normally share with your sister. Something a little bit more, perhaps. Abimelech sees them through his window and goes, hold on, that's not brother and sister. That's not normal. What is this that you have done to me? And Isaac says, I was afraid that I would die. Abimelech says, what is this you have done? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. I love this story of Abraham and Isaac because they both do the same dumb thing And God responds both times the same way. He spares the family from the guilt and the shame that could have come. He not only spares them from the guilt and the shame that could have come, He actually provides in each of these cases in incredibly miraculous ways that the family is actually blessed in spite of their lying. And as a result of it, they multiply and they grow. 
when it comes to looking at our family of origin, if fear dictated your family, fear of others, fear of not being enough, fear of, of punishment or consequence, fear of any number of things, if fear was the thing that drove your family, the good news for you and me today is that in spite of our fear, God is faithful. When we screw up because we don't know what to do and we're afraid what might happen next and we're unsure of who we are, are His promises good enough? Will He come through this time? Will He be faithful now? Or what might happen if He's not? In spite of all of our fear, He is always faithful. In the New Testament, in the book of 1 John, there's a promise that says when we begin to get to know His love, all of our fear dissipates. In fact, it goes on, it says, perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment, but love with grace, mercy, life. If you come from a family that was dictated by fear, if you live today a life of fear, unsure of what the future holds, Afraid to see your own shadow because what if it means there's six more weeks of spring or winter, whatever that is? If you live in this fear of not being enough or everybody else letting you down, let me encourage you today. God has always been and will always be more than enough for you. And we are invited to see that fear that has driven our family for so long and to say, this is not who I am. And to fixate our eyes not on all of our fears and our problems and our pains and our burdens. Not on all the what-ifs and the unknowns. But to fix our eyes on the cross. God's faithful promise to every fearful individual. I will always be enough. See, where Abraham was told to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him, and God intervened for you and for me and our fear and our failure. God intervened as well with His Son who was sacrificed for us. Last week in Romans, we read the verse that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't wait for us to become enough or do enough or change enough or, or think the right way. He doesn't wait for us to stop screwing up the way our dads did or the way we used to. No, He simply says, let me be enough. Right now and later today and this evening when you're again falling back into that same sin and tomorrow when you're unsure and the next day and every day, let me be more than enough for you. And His love will cast out all of our fear. And you and I, hopefully, can raise our children or our nephews or our neighbors or the people around us not to be afraid of the what-ifs, but to live in the certainty of the what-now. Now that God has rescued us, we can live free. Now that He has given His Son, we are enough and always will be. Now, no matter what we go through, He's been there with us and will be there for us. Will you pray with me?
God, we thank You for our father Abraham, who in spite of all of Your promises, lied for fear that You would not come through. And the son who was not there in those moments still learned that trait of fear and deception and walked in the same pattern. God, You visit the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation but you have promised to bless those who love you to the thousands. We thank you for your Son, Jesus, who has loved you and kept your commandments, that in him we may be blessed. We may surrender our fear. We may see your perfect love and trust in all of your faithfulness. We thank you, God, that we are not the sum of our past mistakes that our future is not just more of where we've been in the past, but that you declare each day a new day to trust in your promises, to rest in your love, and to be made whole in you, from you, for you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our worship this morning, we are going to continue by collecting an offering. In this place, we believe an offering is an opportunity to partner with God in the work that He's doing, not only in and through this place, but in the community around us through the work that we do outside of these walls. And so if you came prepared to give today and you'd like to partner with us in the things that God is doing, and you prefer to give with cash or check, you can do so in the black boxes as you exit. If you filled out one of those connect cards with a way that we can be praying for you, you can place that in the box as well. And if you're somebody who prefers to give online or to fill out a Connect card online, you can do so at thepointknox.com by clicking the little teal button in the bottom corner. However you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love because we already have it. Thank you. Now as Blake's pulling up the questions for me to respond to, just a quick clarifier, when Emily says if you have a home in Knoxville, that does not mean a house. If you live in an apartment, you're welcome to host people there. If you live in a dorm room, you're welcome to host people there. So if you have a place to live that you would like to invite other people into or would consider inviting other people into, uh, please sign up so we can make sure we have enough food for everybody. We will feed you and share with you what that can look like. And if you're not available next Sunday, but you're still like, that sounds interesting, uh, please reach out to me and I would love to take you out for coffee and share what we're doing and... Uh, go from there. We had one. Whoa. Orange, you got me. Okay, good. Um, so we got one question from last week that we missed, um, and it says, First uh, Peter 1, verse 16 says, For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. I always attributed the word holy only to God because it means exalted or worthy of complete devotion. How do I become holy since I do not consider myself someone to be exalted or worthy of devotion? It's a great question. And I would say underneath that definition, you're probably never going to be holy. Another definition of holy is one who is set apart, one who is different or other than. Ultimately, we know God is holy and that He is set apart and other than us in every way perfectly. Um, but you and I can be holy as God is holy and that we can be set apart as well not by our own righteousness and doing the right thing. That's self-righteousness and nobody likes a self-righteous person. 
But we can be holy by looking at the One who's perfect and emulating Him, seeking to become like Jesus. The only way we do that is by spending a whole lot of time with Jesus and then in turn to start doing the things He did to eat with sinners, to love the unlovable, to forgive the unforgivable, to act like He did in many ways. And we don't do this because we're perfect or better than everybody, but because He invites us into that. So I would say to be holy as our Father in Heaven is holy is not that you need to be perfect, but you need to look like one who is unlike all the rest of us and begin to emulate and act, look to Him and begin to emulate and act like Him. Cool. Uh, next question is for uh, today, and it says, how old was Sarah when Pharaoh took her and Almabek took her? Uh, wasn't she quite old? Yes. She was in her mid-70s when God called them to leave, so probably in her early 80s. Uh, it's the best I can say about that. She aged well, probably. Hey, you know what? We've got this culture that thinks age means you stop being beautiful. That's wrong. You can be beautiful at any age. Yeah. yeah. Um, last question so far is, if Abraham served the same God we do, and all three of those religions started from Abraham, does that mean we serve the same God, or does their denial of Jesus as God mean they also deny the God of Abraham? What does that mean for the salvation of the Jewish and Islamic communities? It's a great question, and the short answer is yes. Uh, because they diverge to go different directions than the truth, uh, they are missing out on what God has promised to them because it's only in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity as revealed in and through Jesus, uh, and all of Scripture. It's only in Him that we are saved. And so where Judaism likes the Father but ignores the Son and the Holy Spirit, that's a problem. Where Islam loves the Father and thinks that, that Jesus was not God's Son but a really good prophet, that's a problem. Um, you and I are invited to recognize that Muslims and Jewish people are not our enemy. They're nearly our brother. And I say nearly our brother because they have gone astray and missed out on the goodness and the grace of Jesus. And we're invited to love them and share with them. Um, and I would recommend, if you know anybody who's Muslim, uh, maybe sit down and talk with them. Not to try to convert them, but to learn what do they believe. Uh, ask questions and explore their world of faith. And maybe you'll be invited to share some of your world of faith in the process. All right? I have a, a friend who's Muslim, and we like to sit down and talk a lot, so it's a good learning. It, it, test yourself. I'm just going to throw this out there, and it may not always prove true, because every stereotype falls apart at some point, but most Muslims and Jewish people I know can cook really well, so if nothing else, get to know them so that you can eat some great food, all right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, looks like that's it for today. No more questions. Awesome. As always, you can text your questions in every single week, and I will do my best to respond either at the end of the service or the following week or midweek online if I see them in time. Uh, so as you go today, go with this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May He look upon you with favor and give you His peace. Amen. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. 
simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.